Lord. What an exciting day as we celebrate your resurrection, Lord, and we give you praise and we give you glory. I pray, Lord, that you might use me, Lord, today to just proclaim the greatest news that you have risen, Lord. And so, Lord, I pray that you will anoint me with your Holy Spirit to bring this message to your people so that we can grow in our faith, Lord, grow in our love for you, for each other. I pray, Lord, that this message will be pleasing to you. I pray and ask these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. And amen. Well, Chris, I feel, I'm serious today because I've, I have the white shirt on. So when I wear the white shirt, that means I'm, I'm serious. What is your greatest fear? If you ask people, what is your greatest fear? Most likely it's going to be death. Once we get through some of the other fears that we have, but the ultimate one is death. And how people handle their fear of death is very interesting, I found. How many have heard of Peter Thiel? No, but Peter Thiel. Well, okay. Now, I'm not a high-tech guy, but he's a multi-billionaire who's co-founder of PayPal. And he's got other, obvious other interests going on as well. Well, Peter's goal is to live to be 120. And he spent millions and millions of dollars in areas of trying to prolong one's life. And he once said in an interview, he said, I've always had a strong sense that death was always a terrible, terrible thing. And even though he has all this money, he recognizes that he cannot prevent his death from happening. But boy, he's trying in so many different ways. He's, uh, he's tried to maintain a strict diet. He's also involved in human growth hormone the, uh, uh, therapy. And uh, he understands by taking this therapy that it increases his risk of getting cancer. But he's willing to try it because he feels that they're going to find a cure for cancer in the next decade. He's also one that's into, he's, he's, always, he's already applied, he's about 53, 54 years old, but he's already applied for, if he dies, then he's going to have his body frozen. You know, they do that with liquid nitrogen, I believe it is. It's called cryogenics or cryogenetics or whatever. And there's a growing, growing trend in that direction with the idea that one day their bodies will be restored and they'll live again. Now, getting back to, uh, to Peter Thiel, he also claims to be a Christian. I'm not going to go any further than that. So, so this idea of death, how many have heard of uh, Reverend uh, David Jeremiah? He's an author, has some many great, great books. And he once said, before there can be a resurrection, there must be death. That's the fact of life. 
We've talked about that several times, but it is what it is what it is. We cannot change that. It is a fact. I'll venture to say, unless Jesus comes, comes back again, we're not all going to be here in the next 75 years. Well, some of the kids will, but adults, we won't be here. Right? Unless they come up with some way to prolong one's life, which they do, are making strides in the area. But anyway, that's probably another uh, topic. So I want us this morning, I want to give us hope. I want to give a hope. Some people, when they, when they think of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they're skeptical. Did it really happen? Well, what about this? We've had all these theories out there about the resurrection. Did it really happen? But I'm here to tell you today, we have more evidence that Jesus Christ existed and that he was resurrected than we do of all the knowledge we have of Julius Caesar. That's a lot of evidence. So we're going to be looking at some of the evidence of Jesus' resurrection. And then after we look at some of the evidence, then I want to tie it, tie it together. And we're going to, I'm going to talk briefly about the implications of what the resurrection has for each and every one of us. Amen? And amen. The first one is the guards. One evidence. Let's look at Matthew 27, uh, 62 through 66. The next day, the one after preparation day, preparation day referred to the day before the beginning of the Sabbath and where they, where they would prepare the Sabbath meal. The chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, he's referring to Christ, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he's been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate said. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and, went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. The Jewish officials remembered something the disciples forgot. Verse 63, they called, they called Jesus the deceiver because he said that he would, he would rise again in three days. Look at verse 65 once again. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb secure as you know how. Pilate wanted to make sure that someone wouldn't steal Jesus' body. Now let's talk about the Roman guard. When you look at scripture, it depends on, on what, if, if you do a, a parallel of all the Gospels of Jesus' resurrection, it mentions guard, then it mentions guards. Back in the days of Christ, the Roman guard consisted of more than one. So we're not talking about a guard, we're talking about more than one. That was their tradition. So a Roman guard typically could be eight people, it could be 12 people, it could be 13 soldiers, it could be 30, it could be 16. And according to the tradition of Jesus' resurrection, most, I think, uh, theologians go with the idea there were 16 
well-equipped armed guards. Four of the guards actually stood guard in, in front of the entrance of the tomb. While the other 12, what were they doing? They were lounging or they were sleeping in front of the other four guards. Now, history tells us that the guards that were resting, they kind of formed a semicircle in front of the other four guards. Why did they do that? Because the tomb was cut out of rock. There wasn't a back entrance to the tomb, only the front. So they were there. Now, what are the chances, in your mind, based on what I just shared with you, what are the chances that someone could steal Jesus' body? I say, no clue, not a chance. Now we move on to the seal. Verse 66, so they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. This official seal was a cord that stretched across, across the entrance, the stone of the tomb, and was fastened with, with, a, with security wax or clay on each side of the seal. The seal was a cord across that, okay? They did that to prevent people from entering the tomb. That was their whole point. So let's just kind of briefly recap here, okay? In order to steal Jesus' body, it has to be one great adventure. First of all, they would have to step over all the guards that were lounging around in front, you know, stepping, oh, excuse me, oh, I stepped in your finger, oh, I'm sorry, whoop, oh. They had to step over them. Then after that, they had to get past the four guards that were standing. And these men were trained. They just didn't pick someone out of the crowd. They were trained for this. So after they negotiated around the four guards, then they had to deal with the cord, the seal. They'd have to cut it. And here's the real biggie for me. Then they'd have to take and roll that massive stone. I'm going to talk about that later. That massive stone away from the entrance of the tomb. Really? Even Jack Reacher of Mission Impossible couldn't have done that. You know, it's amazing. That's more evident. It's just logical. Just use, you know, you know God has given us logic. He's given us the ability to think. Just think about that. Is that possible? You know, think about that evidence. Then we have Jesus was laid. Boom. Number three. Matthew 27, 57 through 61. As, as evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. 
And Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Now, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. Joseph, a follower of Jesus, received permission to place Jesus' body into his own tomb. I love that. Into his own tomb and wrapped him in a cloth. Now let's go back to 60, verse 60b and 61. He rolled the, the stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Again, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the, t- the tomb. How could one man, how could one man do this? Let's talk about that stone that was in front blocking that entranceway. A typical st- a tomb back in the Jewish days, in Jesus' day, was four to five inches, four to five feet. And they had two types of covering to cover that tomb. One was the round one that we read in Scripture. And usually the round stone was only, uh, only the people that had money would use the round stone. The square, a square stone is more for the common whatever. So what do we have here? It says that, that Joseph rolled that stone, weighed 2,000 pounds probably. So he rolled it in front of the, the entrance of the tomb. How did he do that? You know, wouldn't you want to know that? I would want to know that. I, that's my mind. When I read these things, I've got to figure it out. How, how did that work? Does that make any sense? Well, it does make sense. When you consider this one theory, which I think is the right one, that when they cut the tomb, you know, cut it out of a rock, they had this massive stone that covered it. And what they did with a round stone, they would put a wedge under the, under the, the stone, and they have grooves that would lead from the stone right to the entrance of the tomb. So it's very possible for one person to take and pull that wedge out, and the, and the force, you know, the force of that tomb, the stone would start to roll and roll down the grooves right in front of the, temp, the tomb. <coughs> Excuse me. Is that possible? You know, I thought about that, and I thought, well, that is possible. Then I thought about this. What are the chances that one man, but if you read John's account of the, of the empty tomb, Nicodemus was there. But let's stick with this account. How could one man and two downcast women steal Jesus' body by overcoming 16 soldiers. Really? 
How could that be? That defies common sense. Number four. The empty tomb, Matthew 28, verses 2 through 7. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him, they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen. Just as he said, Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have Told you the stone was rolled away by a supernatural force, not so Jesus could come out, but so that others could come in and see. The angel said, See, come in, see, see. He's not here. He's not here. And then what did the angel say? He said, Go, go and tell. Come and see, go and tell. Tell others. What you have seen, that Jesus is not here, he is risen. He is risen. What happened? What happened to those guards? They were so frightened, so much, that the Bible says in verse 4, they were like, they fell dead. Boom. They were just overwhelmed with shock. These strong, trained men, what they saw in that tomb It just overwhelmed them. They couldn't believe it. But it happened. Consider this. As we talk about this story, we see that that wasn't a hoax. I don't know how to say it any better than that. That it wasn't a hoax. That Jesus Christ was alive. Amen is right. He was alive. And they couldn't believe it. That changed everything. That changed the game, if you will. Jesus Christ is alive. That changed them. They became bold followers of Jesus Christ. That's Easter. I cannot prove to you physically that Jesus Christ is risen. Can I? I can't present Jesus to you, say, ladies and gentlemen... You are very lucky this morning. We have a special guest, Jesus, and have Jesus come through those doors and speak to us. We don't have that in front of us. But we have evidence of his resurrection by a changed life. Jesus changes life. Jesus, 
Take your own story. How you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Was your life changed when you received Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Did that change your life? Did that change your attitude? Did that change your values? Yes. We all have different stories, but it's the same Christ that transforms us. So we know that language, know that it is true, that Jesus changes life. Now I want to get to the burial uh, cloth for a moment. And we're going to be looking at John chapter 20, verses 3 through 9. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth, cloth, get this, was folded by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and he believed. They still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. What did they see when they went into that empty tomb? Jesus was gone. Jesus wasn't there. All they saw was what? His burial clothes. Right? That was it. That's all that they saw. Consider, if Jesus' body was stolen... Why would they have taken the time to neatly fold up his linen? Why would they do that? You have robbers come to your house. You're not home. And they take all of your possessions. What do they do after they rob you blind? Do they say, well... Why don't we just tidy this place up? Okay, you, you go get the vacuum cleaner, stop vacuuming, and I'll take care of the dishes or whatever. Of course not. Of course not. So when, when they saw the linen, what happened, the Bible says they saw and they believed. And when they believed, that changed their lives. I can't imagine. I think if all of us were, or if you're a really a skeptical and you call yourself an atheist, I believe he would have walked in that tomb and you would have saw those clothes neatly folded. You would have, you would have uh, became a believer. That's how powerful it was. They believed. And this is one of mine, really, that I enjoy uh, talking about, and that's the nail marks, number six. We're going to be looking at, uh, again, we're going to look at uh, John 20, 24 through 25. Now Thomas called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. 
But he said to them, Unless I see the, the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into a side, I will not believe it. I will not believe this unless I see all of this. So, so what do we have? Jesus appeared to his disciples behind closed doors except for Thomas. Thomas later came. And when he came, they told him of Jesus appearing. And how did Thomas respond? With doubt. He just flat out doubted again. Verse 25. So the other disciples took him. We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Then Jesus appeared again. I love this. Verses 26 through 29. A week later, Jesus' disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach your hand. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have seen, have not seen, and yet believe. Jesus said to Thomas, See, touch me. Don't doubt, but believe. And to me, Thomas' Easter message in verse 28 says it all. He said, My Lord and my God. That's us, my Lord and my God. We sing. We sing Easter songs, hymns. But they all should convey that same phrase, my Lord and my God. What he's done for you. Our response should be my Lord and my God. When Thomas' doubts disappeared. He was transformed. That guy that doubted, that guy that said, whoa, I got to see this before I believe it. That doubter, was when he was transformed, he became a missionary in, in India where he gave his life for Christ. Now, we all know, or most of us know, that the disciples, the believers, they became bold, and they really were martyrs for the Lord. Would you die for a lie? Would you? I wouldn't. Would I be here if the empty tomb was a lie? Absolutely not. I wouldn't come within 100 feet of a church if Jesus, in fact, was still in the tomb. And you wouldn't either. God has given us 
And the resurrection has given us this very assurance, the same assurance that really that Peter experienced. My Lord and my God. And Jesus is saying to us today, you believe. Even though you have not seen, you believe. That's what's going to get us into heaven. That faith is going to get us, that's our ticket to heaven. Of seeing. What did the, what did the, Hebrew, the uh, author of Hebrews say? Blessed are those who have not seen but believe. Number seven, the cloud of witnesses. Cloud of witnesses. 1 Corinthians 15, 38. You have to really listen to this. This, this to me is really, if you're really doubting yourself, saying, you know, I don't know. I don't know what, you know, if this is really true, what's being said here today, listen to this one. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. Paul said, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Most of them are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to the apostles, and least of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. So, Paul says Jesus' resurrection appearances are well documented. We have the testimony of his disciples, of the apostles, of James, etc. Then we have the testimony of 500 witnesses. 500. How do you think that would stand up in a court of law? How about if your back was against the wall and you needed witnesses and you had 500 in front that would witness for you? That make it feel awful good, wouldn't it? And then Paul said, not only that, I'm a testimony, I'm a witness. But he said, but I'm not like the others. I was abnormally born, meaning that Jesus appeared to him on that Damascus road after, later on. You see? We're almost done, but not quite. How many of you remember Lee Strobel or heard of him? Okay, Lee Strobel, I had the opportunity to really catch his testimony. Lee Strobel now is, a, is an author. He, uh, he was at one time became a pastor at Willow Creek. Uh, and Barrington, and then went out to California, and was pastoring alongside of Rick Warren, etc. Then he went on, and 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 did other uh, 
uh, ministry uh, callings. But Strobel, very briefly, Lee Strobel started out as an investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune. And Strobel, back in the day, his wife became a born-again Christian. And Lee Strobel was an atheist. And he shared he did not have any zero belief in God. But he got so agitated with his wife and her, her faith, her walk with Jesus, he said, I'm going to prove that she is wrong. I'm going to go all over the world and use my abilities as an investigative lawyer to prove that that resurrection is a hoax. That Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And that's exactly what he did. He was ready for bear. He had all of his questions of why it's not true. He went from the reliability of the Bible. And when he talked to all these Bible scholars and literary people across the world, he lived up, huh, it is reliable. And then he went on, he talked to archaeologists and others about the possibilities of the empty tomb, etc. Every step he took to disprove the resurrection, he was shot down. And finally what happened, Lee Strobel became a born-again Christian. He said, it is true. See? The facts for him lined up. And the facts don't lie. Friends, for us, the facts line up. They don't lie. This is real. Jesus' resurrection is real. So I want to close up, but I want us to look at some four implications of the resurrection for us today. Number one, because Jesus has risen, we can live a life of grace and forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9. We've heard this many, many times, haven't we? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. When we put our faith in, in Christ's resurrection, he, what does he do? He forgives our sins and our mistakes. I love that. If you have guilt and regret, put it at the foot of the cross. Put it there and you will receive forgiveness. You will receive grace. There you will find peace. There you will find restoration. You know? So many people just have themselves tied up in knots. We live in a very stressed out world, but so many people have themselves so tied up in knots. And I'm not saying for or against or whatever. I'm just saying even the Christian community are tied up in knots. Many are. Because of the events of the world. What's going to happen? Guess what? God knows. God knows what's going to happen to this world. As Christians, we hang on. We look for truth. But at the end of the day, God has us. We are in his control. The empty tomb tells us that nobody died except for Jesus and rose from the dead. 
Jesus. Jesus is in control. I'm not saying that we're not to speak out. I'm not saying that, that God's not doing something. He's doing something. I think he's giving us warnings. But at the end of the day, I'm hanging on Jesus. I'm hanging on him and his word. I'm going to trust him that he's going to see all of us through what's going on for his glory and for his honor. I'm not going to be tied up in knots. I'm not going to be chasing my tail. I'm not. Because the man, Jesus, is my Lord, my Redeemer, my Savior, my everything. And he's going to take care of me as he's going to take care of you, brother and sister, in Christ. Amen? Number two. Because Jesus has risen, we can live a life of meaning and purpose. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, one verse. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Because the tomb is empty doesn't mean that our faith and life is empty. People retire. I see this happen when people, some people... I hope it's not going to be you. When you retire, have a purpose in your life. When you retire, when that time comes, have a purpose. Have a goal. Far too many people, when they retire, they think, well, okay, I'm going to catch up on the soap operas. You know, I'm going to sleep in until noon, do whatever. You know, every, every day's like a, like a weekend. I have all this time, so I've worked all so hard all these years. Now it's my time to rest. Chances are you will die sooner by living that kind of a lifestyle. That will happen. That's the truth. But, however, the resurrection reminds us that our work, our life, they're not in vain. But have meaning. Your life has meaning because Jesus gives purpose and direction. When you seek him, he will give you purpose. He will give you direction. He will give you hope. Because that's what he does. Amen? Number three. Because Christ has risen, we can live a life of power. Ephesians 1, 18 through 20. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. He has called you to give you hope to which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. I love that. His incomparably great power for us who believe. The power that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. I love that, especially the second half of that. He talks about power. He talks about resurrection power. I don't know if this is good or bad, John, or whatever, I've done so many funerals. You know, I've literally buried a large congregation through the years. And some of those funerals were very, very hard 
because I didn't know. And some of those people I knew didn't know Christ. So how do you, as a pastor, sharing the, the truth of the resurrection when people in front of you aren't buying that? And how many times, and all of us can speak to this, we've lost loved ones. And you go to a visitation and you see the casket. And you see the body of your loved one. And you weep. You grieve. I've seen that far too often through the years. I've held hands of people that are so distraught but their, their loved one just passed away. I watched that. I witnessed that. Try to give them hope. Try to give them hope. That's not the time to give them theology. Try to give them hope. Sometimes, don't you wish that you could just snap your fingers and you could reverse death? Wouldn't that be nice, I guess, if we could just snap our fingers and say, oh, that person, come alive, come alive, right now. But we can't. We don't have that. Only Jesus Christ can restore a body and turn it from death into life. Only Jesus can do that. Oh, friends. I get so overwhelmed with the thought and the truth of the resurrection. We've been talking about today and this passage is that the resurrection power gives us life. The resurrection power answers our prayers. The resurrection power resolves our problems. The resurrection power can heal our wounds. And the resurrection power enables us to live a new, fulfilled life right now. That is it. I would trust that you're not here today thinking this resurrection is a joke. It isn't. It is real. And my last comments, number, number four. Because Jesus has risen, we have eternal life. We have eternal life. We talked about because Jesus is risen, we can live a life of power. Now because Jesus is risen, risen we have eternal life. First Corinthians 15, 20, small, one verse, but very powerful. Because Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ, the first fruits, means Jesus was, was the first to rise from the dead 
and conquered death. And his resurrection would be followed by a great harvest of believers. All of those who believe in him. That's what Paul is talking about. We are part of the harvest. He's talking about us right here today. This happened 2,000 years ago, and we are part of that great harvest. Amen? Doesn't that rev you up? Doesn't make you want to say, whoa, want to dance around? He died just for you. If you're the last person on this earth, he would have died just for you. He loved you so much that he died for you. He loved you so much that he was humiliated for you and for me. Praise God. Praise God for that. If you haven't opened your heart, anyone here today, if you haven't opened your heart to Jesus, if you haven't opened your heart to this resurrection, the empty tomb, and you have not received salvation, you can do so now. This is not, this might be the most important prayer you will ever pray in your entire life. Because it's a prayer that could save your life eternally. I'm just saying, sometimes people say, oh, gee, he's going to pray for salvation, whatever. And what does that mean? Maybe before you thought that way. But maybe today, God's timing, you're ready to pray. And you're ready to receive Jesus. If you're not sure of your salvation, if you're not sure of the empty tomb, you can be sure today. You can be sure. So I'm going to pray. And in your silence of your heart, just, just pray these words with me. I'll pray them in your heart. You just pray them. I'll try to pray really slow because I really honestly believe that the Bible says if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. Isn't that great news? You will be saved. That one verse, that's all it takes for you to receive the greatest gift of all, eternal life. God wants you to have that gift, my brother, my sister. If you have not received that, Jesus, I believe, is begging you to receive it because he died for you. This is real to him because he, he knows what is at stake. So let us pray. Dear Lord, I believe you love me so much that you died on the cross just for me. Oh Lord, I admit I've disobeyed. I admit I have not been following you. But Jesus, please forgive me of my sins. And help me to grow in your grace and forgiveness. Jesus, I turn from my sins. And I receive you right now into my heart as Lord and Savior. I believe you died for me on the cross. And I believe 
He rose again. So today, in this place, this time, I receive your overwhelming power, the very power that raised you, Jesus, from the dead. Now, Lord, help me to live for you today, tomorrow, and forever. If you pray that prayer, like Thomas, you can say with assurance, my Lord and my God. And Jesus Christ is saying to your heart, welcome, welcome to the harvest.